Chapter Six of the Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six The Thrust of a Knife. Conan stooped and tore the knife from the monster's breast. Then he went swiftly up the stair. What other shapes of fear the darkness held he could not guess, but he had no desire to encounter any more. This touch-and-go sort of battling was too strenuous even for the giant Cimmerian. The moonlight was fading from the floor, the darkness closing in, and something like panic pursued him up the stair. He breathed a gusty sigh of relief when he reached the head and felt the third key turn in the lock. He opened the door slightly and craned his neck to peer through, half expecting an attack from some human or bestial enemy. He looked into the bare stone corridor, dimly lighted, and a slender, supple figure stood before the door. "'Your Majesty!' It was a low, vibrant cry, half in relief and half in fear. The girl sprang to his side, then hesitated, as if abashed. "'You bleed,' she said. "'You have been hurt.' He brushed aside the implication with an impatient hand. "'Scratches that wouldn't hurt a baby.' Your skewer came in handy, though. But for it, Tarascus's monkey would be cracking my shin-bones for the marrow right now. But what now? Follow me, she whispered. I will lead you outside the city wall. I have a horse concealed there. She turned to lead the way down the corridor, but he laid a heavy hand on her naked shoulder. Walk beside me, he instructed her softly, passing his massive arm around her lithe waist. You've played me fair so far, and I'm inclined to believe in you. But I've lived this long only because I've trusted no one too far, man or woman. So, now, if you play me false, you won't live to enjoy the jest. She did not flinch at the sight of the reddened poignard or the contact of his hard muscles about her supple body. Cut me down without mercy if I play you false, she answered. The very feel of your arm about me, even in menace... His as the fulfillment of a dream. The vaulted corridor ended at a door which she opened. Outside lay another black man, a giant in turban and silk loincloth, with a curved sword lying on the flags near his hand. He did not move. I drugged his wine, she whispered, swerving to avoid the recumbent figure. He is the last and outer guard of the pits. None ever escaped from them before, and none has ever wished to seek them, so only these black men guard them. Only these of all the servants knew it was King Conan that Zaltotun brought a prisoner in his chariot. I was watching, sleepless, from an upper casement that opened into the court, while the other girls slept, for I knew that a battle was being fought, or had been fought in the west, and I feared for you. I saw the blacks carry you up the stair, and I recognized you in the torchlight. I slipped into this wing of the palace tonight, in time to see them carry you to the pits. I had not dared come here before nightfall. You must have lain in drugged senselessness all day in Zaltotun's chamber. Oh, let us be wary. Strange things are afoot in the palace tonight. The slave said that Zaltotun slept as he often sleeps, drugged by the lotus of Stygia. But Tarascus is in the palace. 
he entered secretly through the postern wrapped in his cloak which was dusty as with long travel and attended only by his squire the lean silent aridius i cannot understand but i am afraid they came out at the foot of a narrow winding stair and mounting it passed through a narrow panel which she slid aside when they had passed through she slipped it back in place and it became merely a portion of the ornate wall they were in a more spacious corridor carpeted and tapestried over which hanging lamps shed a golden glow conan listened intently but he heard no sound throughout the palace he did not know in what part of the palace he was or in which direction lay the chamber of Zaltotun. The girl was trembling as she drew him along the corridor to halt presently beside an alcove masked with satin tapestry. Drawing this aside, she motioned for him to step into the niche and whispered, Wait here, beyond that door at the end of the corridor, we are likely to meet slaves or eunuchs at any time of the day or night. I will go and see if the way is clear before we essay it. Instantly his hair-trigger suspicions were aroused. Are you leading me into a trap? Tears sprang into her dark eyes. She sank to her knees and seized his muscular hand. Oh, my king, do not mistrust me now. Her voice shook with desperate urgency. If you doubt and hesitate, we are lost. Why should I bring you up out of the pits to betray you now? All right, he muttered. I'll trust you, though by Crom the habits of a lifetime are not easily put aside. Yet I wouldn't harm you now if you brought all the swordsmen in Nemedia upon me. But for you, Tarascus's cursed ape would have come upon me in chains and unarmed. Do as you wish, girl. Kissing his hands, she sprang lithely up and ran down the corridor to vanish through a heavy double door. He glanced after her, wondering if he was a fool to trust her. Then he shrugged his mighty shoulders and pulled the satin curtain hangings together, masking his refuge. It was not strange that a passionate young beauty should be risking her life to aid him. Such things had happened often enough in his life. Many women had looked on him with favor in the days of his wanderings and in the time of his kingship. Yet he did not remain motionless in the alcove waiting for her return. Following his instincts, he explored the niche for another exit and presently found one. The opening of a narrow passage masked by the tapestries that ran to an ornately carved door, barely visible in the dim light that filtered in from the outer corridor. And as he stared into it, somewhere beyond that carven door, he heard the sound of another door opening and shutting, and then a low mumble of voices. The familiar sound of one of those voices caused a sinister expression to cross his dark face. Without hesitation, he glided down the passage and crouched like a stalking panther beside the door. It was not locked and manipulating it delicately he pushed it open a crack with a reckless disregard for possible consequences that only he could have explained or defended it was masked on the other side by tapestries but through a thin slit in the velvet he looked into a chamber lit by a candle on an ebony table 
There were two men in that chamber. One was a scarred, sinister-looking ruffian in leather breeks and ragged cloak. The other was Taraskus, king of Nemedia. Taraskus seemed ill at ease. He was slightly pale, and he kept staring and glancing about him, as if expecting and fearing to hear some sound or footstep. "'Go swiftly and at once,' he was saying. "'He is deep in drugged slumber, but I know not when he may awaken.' "'Strange to hear words of fear issuing from the lips of Taraskus,' rumbled the other in a harsh, deep voice. The king frowned. "'I fear no common man, as you well know. But when I saw the cliffs fall at Valkia, I knew that this devil we had resurrected was no charlatan. I fear his powers, because I do not know the full extent of them. But I know that somehow they are connected with this accursed thing which I have stolen from him. It brought him back to life, so it must be the source of his sorcery. He had it hidden well. But following my secret order, a slave spied on him, and saw him place it in a golden chest, and saw where he hid the chest. Even so, I would not have dared steal it, had Zaltotun himself not been sunk in lotus slumber. I believe it is the secret of his power. With it, Orestes brought him back to life. With it... He will make us all slaves if we are not wary. So take it and cast it into the sea as I have bidden you. And be sure you are so far from land that neither tide nor storm can wash it up on the beach. You have been paid. So I have, grunted the ruffian. And I owe more than gold to you, king. I owe you a debt of gratitude. Even thieves can be grateful. Whatever debt you may feel you owe me, answered Taraskus, will be paid when you have hurled this thing into the sea. I'll ride for Zingara and take a ship from Cordava, promised the other. I dare not show my head in Argos because of the matter of a murder or so. I care not, so it is done. Here it is. A horse awaits you in the court. Go, and go swiftly. Something passed between them, something that flamed like living fire. Conan had only a brief glimpse of it, and then the ruffian pulled a slouch hat over his eyes, drew his cloak about his shoulder, and hurried from the chamber. As the door closed behind him, Conan moved with the devastating fury of unchained bloodlust. He had held himself in check so long as he could. The sight of his enemy so near him set his wild blood seething and swept away all caution and restraint. Taraskus was turning toward an inner door when Conan tore aside the hangings and leaped like a blood-mad panther into the room. Taraskus wheeled, but even before he could recognize his attacker, Conan's poignard ripped into him. But the blow was not mortal, as Conan knew the instant he struck. His foot had caught in a fold of the curtains and tripped him as he leaped. The point fleshed itself in Taraskus's shoulder and plowed down along his ribs, and the king of Nemedia screamed. 
The impact of the blow and Conan's lunging body hurled him back against the table and it toppled and the candle went out. They were both carried to the floor by the violence of Conan's rush and the foot of the tapestry hampered them both in its folds. Conan was stabbing blindly in the dark, Taraska screaming in a frenzy of panicky terror. As if fear lent him superhuman energy, Taraskas tore free and blundered away in the darkness, shrieking, Help! Guards! Aridius! Arastas! Arastas! Conan rose, kicking himself free of the tangling tapestries and the broken table, cursing with the bitterness of his bloodthirsty disappointment. He was confused and ignorant of the plan of the palace. The yells of Taraskas were still resounding in the distance, and a wild outcry was bursting forth in answer. The Nemedian had escaped him in the darkness, and Conan did not know which way he had gone. The Cimmerian's rash stroke for vengeance had failed, and there remained only the task of saving his own hide, if he could. Swearing luridly, Conan ran back down the passage and into the alcove, glaring out into the lighted corridor, just as Zenobia came running up to it, her dark eyes dilated with terror. Oh, what has happened? she cried. The palace is roused. I swear I have not betrayed you. No, it was I who stirred up this hornet's nest, he grunted. I tried to pay off a score. What's the shortest way out of this? She caught his wrist and ran fleetly down the corridor. But before they reached the heavy door at the other end, muffled shouts arose from behind it, and the portals began to shake under an assault from the other side. Zenobia wrung her hands and whimpered. We are cut off. I locked that door as I returned through it, but they will burst it in a moment. The way to the postern gate lies through it. Conan wheeled. Up the corridor, though still out of sight, he heard a rising clamor that told him his foes were behind as well as before him. Quick, into this door, the girl cried desperately, running across the corridor and throwing open the door of a chamber. Conan followed her through, and then threw the gold catch behind them. They stood in an ornately furnished chamber, empty but for themselves, and she drew him to a gold-barred window through which he saw trees and shrubbery. "'You are strong,' she panted. "'If you can tear these bars away, you may yet escape. The garden is full of guards, but the shrubs are thick, and you may avoid them.' The southern wall is also the outer wall of the city. Once over that, you have a chance to get away. A horse is hidden for you in a thicket beside the road that runs westward a few hundred paces to the south of the fountain of Thralos. You know where it is? Aye, but what of you? I had meant to take you with me. A flood of joy lighted her beautiful face. Oh, then my cup of happiness is brimming, but I will not hamper your escape. Burdened with me you would fail. Nay, do not fear for me. They will never suspect that I aided you willingly. Go. What you have just said will glorify my life throughout the long years. He caught her up in his iron arms, crushed her slim, vibrant figure to him, and kissed her fiercely on eyes, cheek, throat, and lips, until she lay panting in his embrace. Gusty and tempestuous as a storm-wind, even his love-making was violent. I'll go, he muttered, but by Crom, I'll come for you some day. 
Wheeling, he gripped the gold bars and tore them from their sockets with one tremendous wrench, threw a leg over the sill and went down swiftly, clinging to the ornaments on the wall. He hit the ground running and melted like a shadow into the maze of towering rose bushes and spreading trees. The one look he cast back over his shoulder showed him Zenobia leaning over the window-sill, her arms stretched after him in mute farewell and renunciation. Guards were running through the garden, all converging toward the palace where the clamor momentarily grew louder. Tall men in burnished cuirasses and crested helmets of polished bronze. The starlight struck glints from their gleaming armor among the trees, betraying their every movement, but the sound of their coming ran far before them. To Conan, wilderness-bred, their rush through the shrubbery was like the blundering stampede of cattle. Some of them passed within a few feet of where he lay flat in a thick cluster of bushes, and never guessed his presence. With the palace as their goal, they were oblivious to all else about them. When they had gone shouting on, he rose and fled through the garden with no more noise than a panther would have made. So quickly he came to the southern wall and mounted the steps that led to the parapet. The wall was made to keep people out, not in. No sentry patrolling the battlements was in sight. Crouching by an embrasure, he glanced back at the great palace rearing above the cypresses behind him. Lights blazed from every window, and he could see figures flitting back and forth across them like puppets on invisible strings. He grinned hardly, shook his fist in a gesture of farewell and menace, and let himself over the outer rim of the parapet. A low tree a few yards below the parapet received Conan's weight as he dropped noiselessly into the branches. An instant later he was racing through the shadows with the swinging hillman's stride that eats up long miles. Gardens and pleasure villas surrounded the walls of Belverus. Drowsy slaves, sleeping by their watchmen's pikes, did not see the swift and furtive figure that scaled walls, crossed alleys made by the arching branches of trees, and threaded a noiseless way through orchards and vineyards. Watchdogs woke and lifted their deep booming clamor at a gliding shadow, half-scented, half-sensed, and then it was gone. In the chamber of the palace, Tarascus writhed and cursed on a blood-spattered couch under the deft, quick fingers of Orastus. The palace was thronged with wide-eyed, trembling servitors, but the chamber where the king lay was empty save for himself and the renegade priest. "'Are you sure he still sleeps?' Tarascus demanded again, setting his teeth against the bite of the herb juices with which Orastes was bandaging the long, ragged gash in his shoulder and ribs. "'Eastor, Mithra, and Set! That burns like molten pitch of hell!' "'Which you would be experiencing even now but for your good fortune,' remarked Orastes. "'Whoever wielded that knife struck to kill.' "'Yes, I have told you that Zalto Toon still sleeps. "'Why are you so urgent upon that point? "'What has he to do with this?' "'You know nothing of what has passed in the palace tonight?' "'Taraska searched the priest's countenance with burning intensity. "'Nothing. "'As you know, I have been employed in translating manuscripts for Zalto Toon for some months now, 
transcribing esoteric volumes written in the younger languages into script he can read. He was well versed in all the tongues and scripts of his day, but he has not yet learned all the newer languages, and to save time he has me translating these works for him, to learn if any new knowledge has been discovered since his time. I did not know that he had returned last night until he sent for me and told me of the battle. Then I returned to my studies, nor did I know that you had returned until the clamor in the palace brought me out of my cell. Then you do not know that Zaltotun brought the king of Aquilonia a captive to this palace? Orastes shook his head without particular surprise. Zaltotun merely said that Conan would oppose us no more. I supposed that he had fallen, but did not ask the details. Zaltotun saved his life when I would have slain him, snarled Tarascus. I saw his purpose instantly. He would hold Conan captive to use as a club against us, against Almaric, against Valerius, and against myself. So long as Conan lives, he is a threat, a unifying factor for Aquilonia that might be used to compel us into courses we would not otherwise follow. I mistrust this undead Pythonian. Of late, I have begun to fear him. I followed him some hours after he had departed eastward. I wished to learn what he intended doing with Conan. I found that he had imprisoned him in the pits. I intended to see that the barbarian died in spite of Zaltotun, and I accomplished. A cautious knock sounded at the door. That's Eridius, grunted Tarascus. Let him in. The Saturnine squire entered, his eyes blazing with suppressed excitement. How, Eridius, exclaimed Tarascus, have you found the man who attacked me? You did not see him, my lord, asked Eridius as one who would assure himself of a fact he already knows to exist. You did not recognize him? No. It happened so quick, and the candle was out. All I could think of was that it was some devil loosed on me by Zaltotun's magic. The Pythonian sleeps in his barred and bolted room. But I have been in the pits. Aridius twitched his lean shoulders excitedly. Well, speak, man, exclaimed Tarascus impatiently. What did you find there? an empty dungeon whispered the squire the corpse of the great ape what tarascus started upright and blood gushed from his opened wound ay the man-eater is dead stabbed through the heart and conan is gone tarascus was gray of face as he mechanically allowed orastes to force him prostrate again and the priest renewed work upon his mangled flesh. Conan, he repeated, not a crushed corpse escaped? Mithra, he is no man but a devil himself. I thought Zaltotun was behind this wound. I see now. Gods and devils. It was Conan who stabbed me. Aridius, I, your majesty, Search every nook in the palace. He may be skulking through the dark corridors now like a hungry tiger. Let no niche escape your scrutiny, and beware. It is not a civilized man you hunt, but a blood-mad barbarian 
whose strength and ferocity are those of a wild beast. Scour the palace grounds and the city. Throw a cordon about the walls. If you find he has escaped from the city, as he may well do, take a troop of horsemen and follow him. Once past the walls, it will be like hunting a wolf through the hills, but haste, as you may yet catch him. This is a matter which requires more than ordinary human wits, said Orestes. Perhaps we should seek Zaltotun's advice. No, exclaimed Tarascus violently. Let the troopers pursue Conan and slay him. Zaltotun can hold no grudge against us if we kill a prisoner to prevent his escape. Well, said Orestes, I am no Acheronian, but I am versed in some of the arts and the control of certain spirits which have cloaked themselves in material substance. Perhaps I can aid you in this matter. The fountain of Thralos stood in a clustered ring of oaks beside the road a mile from the walls of the city. Its musical tinkle reached Conan's ears through the silence of the starlight. He drank deep of its icy stream, and then hurried southward toward a small, dense thicket he saw there. Rounding it, he saw a great white horse tied among the bushes. Heaving a deep, gusty sigh, he reached it with one stride. A mocking laugh brought him about, glaring. A dully, glinting, mail-clad figure moved out of the shadows into the starlight. This was no plumed and burnished palace guardsman. It was a tall man in morion and gray chainmail, one of the adventurers, a class of warriors peculiar to Nemedia, men who had not attained to the wealth and position of knighthood, or who had fallen from that estate, hard-bitten fighters, dedicating their lives to war and adventure. They constituted a class of their own, sometimes commanding troops, but themselves accountable to no man but the king. Conan knew that he could have been discovered by no more dangerous a foeman. A quick glance among the shadows convinced him that the man was alone, and he expanded his great chest slightly, digging his toes into the turf as his thews coiled tensely. I was riding for Belverus on Almaric's business, said the adventurer, advancing warily. The starlight was a long sheen on the great two-handed sword he bore naked in his hand. A horse whinnied to mine from the thicket. I investigated and thought it strange a steed should be tethered there. I waited, and lo, I have caught a rare prize." The adventurers lived by their swords. "'I know you,' muttered the Nemedian. "'You are Conan, king of Aquilonia. "'I thought I saw you die in the valley of the Valkia, but—' "'Conan sprang as a dying tiger springs. "'Practiced fighter, though the adventurer was. "'He did not realize the desperate quickness that lurks in barbarian sinews.' He was caught off guard, his heavy sword half-lifted. Before he could either strike or parry, the king's poniard sheathed itself in his throat above the gorget, slanting downward into his heart. With a choked gurgle he reeled and went down, and Conan ruthlessly tore his blade free as his victim fell. 
The white horse snorted violently and shied at the sight and scent of blood on the sword. Glaring down at his lifeless victim, dripping poignard in hand, sweat glistening on his broad breast, Conan poised like a statue, listening intently. In the woods about there was no sound, save for the sleepy cheep of awakened birds. But in the city a mile away he heard the strident blare of a trumpet. Hastily he bent over the fallen man. A few seconds' search convinced him that whatever message the man might have borne was intended to be conveyed by word of mouth. But he did not pause in his task. It was not many hours until dawn. A few minutes later the white horse was galloping westward along the white road, and the rider wore the gray mail of an Amedian adventurer. End of chapter 6